Could we start by you introducing yourself? Yeah, my name is Ian Lowell. I'm an emeritus professor in the Department of Environment and Science at Griffith University. Um, I suppose I should introduce myself. I'm Ian Kerr. I'm on a radio show on community radio for Triple Z. It's called The Paradigm Shift, with an em- and it has an emphasis on social justice and sustainability. Right. Buddy, can you spare a paradigm? <laughs> yes. I suppose I should get the really big question out of the way first, that is... Can capitalism preserve and restore natural systems that we depend upon for for humanity, animals and plants to survive climate change? I think it's relatively unlikely because uh, uh, under capitalism, the primary duty of every corporation is to its shareholders. And uh, what its shareholders expect to, to do is to make a profit. So if it is more profitable to degrade natural systems for which we don't charge people uh, than to uh, behave in a way that is sustainable in the long term, then arguably the directors of private corporations have a fiduciary duty to behave in a way that degrades natural systems rather than using them sustainably. So uh, if we are going to have a sustainable future, we certainly need at least to radically modify the capitalist system. Capitalism was a revolutionary process that allowed humanity to escape the torment of feudalism. What type of economic system will we need to come with in the future? Many of us uh, of my generation were really attracted to the notion that uh, Dubček advanced when he was leading the so-called Velvet Revolution in uh, what was then Czechoslovakia, uh, the combination of what's now the Czech Republic and Slovakia, uh, in 1968. And he argued that what was needed was what he called socialism with a human face. In other words, uh, he argued that uh, we'd be better off with a system in which the primary responsibility for uh, production and distribution of goods and services uh, lies with government, which can make decisions in the interest of the community. But it needs to be done in a way that uh, protects um, the rights of humans. And there was a real concern that under the socialist societies in uh, the Soviet Union and its satellite states in Eastern Europe, that uh, they degenerated into a sort of... um, uh, authoritarian state in which the interests of individuals were uh, sacrificed to the the common good and he argued that while it was desirable for the state to have control of the production of goods and services it was also essential uh, for this to be sustainable for the state to respect the rights of individuals. Soon after the Soviet tanks went into Czechoslovakia there was a change in the leadership of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and uh, Brezhnev was the new leader and he said about increasing spending on military and armaments because he was in a contest with the the premier capitalistic state, uh, the, the United States. So in, in a way it was that contest that led to the, you know, the brinkmanship that gave us the arms race and eventually collapse of uh, the Soviet Union. 
So how do we get to a place where we do get um, a human face on these economic systems? If you uh, think about um, the intervention in Vietnam, when after they overthrew the French colonial regime, and it was obvious that uh, the the leaders of the resistance to the French, uh, Ho Chi Minh and General Jupp, commanded widespread support in the community. Uh, the USA tried to impose a military regime in the south of that country and started a civil war in which we enthusiastically participated. And uh, the Vietnamese people fought off that intervention and established uh, what is essentially a socialist state. And um, if uh, you look, look at Southeast Asia, there's no evidence that the people in Vietnam have fewer opportunities or are less fulfilled than the people in uh, adjoining states like uh, Thailand or Malaysia, um, which uh, are run as capitalist states. So it's there is a sort of um, living laboratory there that shows that you can have a socialist regime and uh, you can provide the things that people want, like uh, security and education and health care. Um, in fact, in, in similar terms, uh, in the, uh, the American hemisphere, Cuba is a shining example of a state that has basically the same life expectancy as the United States of America with about 5% of the average per capita income. And uh, it has uh, better statistics for infant mortality and it does more to provide medical services to poor countries than its much wealthier neighbour. So it it is possible to have uh, socialist states uh, which uh, meet the needs of the community. The, The problem and the, the historic political problem is that um, uh, leaders in positions of power, uh, w- whether in uh, capitalist or socialist states, are very reluctant to share their power with ordinary people. And uh, whatever the economic base of the society, there's a tendency for leaders to start believing that uh, they are irreplaceable and that uh, anything that sustains them is is defensible in the community interest. A number of authors have tried recently to outline alternative sustainable economic models. I'm thinking here of people like Jason Hickel, Aaron Bastani, uh, Troy Vitesse and Drew Pendergrass and of course um, Yanni Fafusakis, the Greek-Australian finance minister from Greece who's written a book called Another Now. Have they been successful? Well, uh, they've been successful in setting out alternative models. They haven't been successful in persuading people to to embrace them. I mean, in similar terms, um, Professor Herman Daly has been uh, advocating to move away from uh, an economic model that is predicated on the fiction that you can have unlimited growth in a closed system and move towards uh, what he's been calling for nearly 50 years, a steady state economy uh, in which uh, we maintain the economy at a a constant level that can be sustained. The the problem with the the current model is that uh, 
it requires every year to consume more and more resources. And uh, there's now abundant evidence that the current level of consumption of resources is outside what can be sustainably produced by natural systems. So we are basically stealing from all future generations to fund our lifestyle. And uh, that's clearly morally indefensible, but uh, at least as importantly, it uh, uh, must inevitably uh, lead to very unfortunate outcomes. So what you're saying is that everyone could drive an electric car. It may be sustainable, but it still will consume a lot of resources and the system that it's based on may still just be growth rather than sustainability. That's exactly right. And uh, you know, that uh, green growth is uh, uh, marginally more desirable than brown growth, but it's still growth. And uh, you cannot expand forever in a closed system. And sooner or later, we need to recognise that... Uh, our civilization only has a future if it can be managed within the sustainable limits of natural systems. I have not heard of a attempt to reconcile the, the green aspects of the political agenda and, for want of a better term, the red aspects, the socialist aspects. You know, a red-green alliance does not seem to be imminent here in Queensland or Australia. You know, the last time I went to a conference that even discussed it was in the 1990s. Is that your experience? Yes, exactly right. I mean, in the uh, uh, around 1990, around the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was a vigorous debate about the need to align the green agenda, the uh, impetus to live within the limits of natural systems, with elements of the red agenda, uh, giving working people a say over their lives and uh, reducing the power of uh, large corporations. But uh, basically since then, large corporations have got larger and more powerful. And uh, uh, I mean, we're now seeing in the um, example of uh, the Australian government's uh, struggle with Facebook and Google that uh, large corporations can now basically dictate terms to national governments because uh, they are wealthier than most sovereign nations. So we've allowed uh, the spread of an international uh, class of corporations which are literally outside the reach of the legal systems of most sovereign nations. You will be speaking at a, a webinar, it's a, like a people's inquiry, on the US-Australia alliance, and your topic will be the environment and community. How do the two relate to each other? The environment and community? Well, uh, no, uh, the environment and community and the US alliance. I've agreed to coordinate responses from individual members of the community to this inquiry, so I'll be drawing them together. So I'm clearly not going to announce in, in advance what I expect to find. But the reason I agreed to do this is that uh, the military are a very significant negative burden on the environment. They consume enormous quantities of resources. They produce enormous quantities of greenhouse gases which are changing the global climate. Um, and they are seen by governments uh, as a priority. So at a time when governments um, 
reducing the funding of uh, public broadcasting, so they're systematically reducing our capacity to be informed about things that affect us. Um, and they're systematically reducing funding of higher education so that they're systematically reducing the capacity to educate our community and uh, make us better able to control our destiny. Uh, at the same time, military expenditure seems to be insulated from their general desire to reduce public spending. And uh, it's uh, an extreme case of this is the United States of America, where one might have expected that the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union might have led to a reduction in military spending. Uh, but instead, military spending continues to increase. And every time there was an attempt to reduce spending on missiles or submarines or bombers, the congressional representative for the area where there were jobs involved jumped up and down and succeeded in, uh, in stopping uh, that happening. So we, we now have a situation where the, uh, the military expenditure is uh, obscene by comparison with community needs. I think the UN Development Program did a study about 15 years ago in which they concluded that a global program to provide every person on earth with the basics of a civilised lifestyle, uh, adequate shelter, uh, nutrition, clean drinking water, uh, health care, education, uh, would cost about 5% of the global military budget or 10% of what the United States of America alone spends on the military. Uh, so it is literally true that we can't afford to provide the services that the community expects because of the amount of money that we spend on the military. And uh, it, there's no evidence that this huge amount of spending makes the world safer. In fact, there's a reasonable argument that uh, the more is spent on military hardware, particularly nuclear weapons, the more likely it becomes that sooner or later a leader will be mad enough or desperate enough to use them. Sorry, you have to 
back Well, I love my country If sunburned white faces If uranium And hard to reach places And the boys